we come back to the Philippians. And last time that I have spoken from the Philippians was the second week of December. So I titled this sermon as Theology of Fellowship. And let me read, but we will spend some time on verse 6. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to Think this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellow partakers with me in this grace. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Amen. When we think about the church life, we categorize our church life in this way. Preaching and pastoral ministries, visitations. Worship, Sunday worship, how to run it, ushers and bulletins and praise and the worship section. Another would be the education department. Sunday school, Bible school, Bible studies, VBS. Another would be fellowship, how to promote uh, fellowship within the body of Christ. Small groups and things like that. Another way, another portion would be missions and evangelism, how we could reach out. With, to the world with the gospel of Christ. Another section that I could think of would be the maintenance of the building. People do not think about that as vital ministry, but it takes so much time and energy. If you own a building with mortgage, maintenance, inspection, all of that. So there are various aspects when we think about church life together. But you understand that there are no strict or clear-cut boundaries between them. And in fact, there shouldn't be. For example, your participation in Sunday worship will include education, evangelism, missions if you want to invite other people, and even fellowship. If you take out the fellowship, it should also include some teaching, and evangelism should be in your mind as you do your fellowship. So we may do one thing at a time 
or, or ask someone to run that department in the church. But a mature Christian will always think and do things holistically, always thinking about how can I make maximum impact in whatever task that I am doing in the church for Christ. So today, as we resume our studies in the book of Philippians, we come to a verse, verse 5 and 6, but verse 6 that talks about, I believe, fellowship. We are going to look at this biblical principle of fellowship. And the fellowship could take many forms. But in the near future, when God allows us to do that fellowship again, I want you to remember these principles in your mind. First of all, let us begin with the definition of fellowship. Verse 5, just to remind you, verse 5 has a word that is well known in Greek and in English. Because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That word fellowship is what? Koinonia. We talked about this and you know that word. And the koinonia, the fellowship, is translated in partnership, fellowship. But my favorite word will be participation. So I want to, let's say, I want to define fellowship by giving you the meaning of that word, koinonia, and using NASB's word, participation in the gospel. I believe that is uh, more fundamental and more balanced and more comprehensive way of seeing our lives together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whatever form of fellowship you engage in, whether it is a small group, whether you are, let's say, ushers gathering together to pray before you hand out your bulletins, music, whatever it is that you are going to do, you think about that fellowship as participation in the gospel. And I think that's a good definition that we could use. That's the North Star. Wherever you are, whatever you do, it always will put you in the right direction because for what am I doing this? For what am I handing out this bulletin? For what am I teaching? For what am I playing? For what am I preaching, teaching? I'm participating in the gospel. I want you to think about that. Coffee break, what am I doing? I'm not drinking really coffee alone, but I am participating in the gospel. That's the way we should think about fellowship all the time. Let me give you three bad examples, or four, so, so that you know what I'm talking about. And none of us are new to church. None of us are new to church, and we know we've been doing fellowship, I don't know, some of you, since your birth. Uh, but let me give you some bad examples from my own life. First of all, one time, um, an elder told me he was already in his 60s and he served that church for about four decades since he was a single guy. 
We were in a van driving to a campsite in Poconos. And he told me, after serving that church about three decades of um, Sunday school, he said to me, his biggest contribution to that church as an overseeing elder for the education department was that I made sure everyone became an excellent skier. So I was in the van. I just didn't know what to say. He was proud that every January he took 50 to 60 junior high and high school students every year to Pocono's to teach them how to ski. Once again, if you put that into right perspective, if you see fellowship that you need, it's essential. But if you miss that, that whole enterprise becomes a... So I was thinking, what, what is the eternal benefit or value for that? I didn't say anything. I couldn't say anything. But let us remember, whatever you do, that's participation in the gospel. You could take a bunch of children to the mountain and use that opportunity to, you know, ski. Let them ski, but do other things for the gospel of Christ. That should be the right way. Second example that I would give is this. When I first became ordained pastor, I was in charge of certain section of the church. The service was one or two. And right after service in the springtime, and once again, I'm saying all of this not to accuse anybody, this is my experience, so that you understand that's how Sam understands what the fellowship should be. What would you do as a pastor after service? I always had a set up a coffee table and try to get to know people. But springtime, people just start leaving right after church. So I asked what's, the people what's going on, and one deacon told me that there is a, a softball league on Sunday afternoon. I think it's, there still is. I've seen many churches doing that. But I, for me, I always felt unease about churches organizing sports on Sunday afternoon. And whenever there was a newcomer, I am trying to talk to that person. But even deacons would take that person or people to that game. The excuse was, I want him or her to have fellowship. When you put fellowship in competition against the gospel, what happens? If that person is a carnal person, not born again person, the pleasures of the world will always win. So I was in a position where I want people to stay in the Sunday afternoon after church, have prayer meeting and Bible study, but the very leadership of the church would take everybody, empty out church right after service to go to that um, um, whatever league. I went there once to just witness. I mean, in the name of fellowship, it's just you're trying to win the game. And I always say, why can't you do that on Friday or Saturday? In this little time that I have trying to build each person up in Christ, you see, 
suddenly then these people avoid me. And let me give you another example. A couple of churches that I've served, they had big gym. When you build a church, usually church will tag big gym because they want people to have fellowship. But what happened in my own experience was, when you open up that basketball gym on Sunday, at least youth group students will come in their shorts, with jersey and basketball shoes, short sleeves, basketball, and they come to church like that. Why? Because they want this worship to be out of the way. As soon as this is over, they will walk down the aisle and go to the gym to play basketball. First church, senior pastor at least said and thought that was not right. So Sunday afternoon, he said, let's close the gym so that people will come with a proper mindset and, and focus on worship. But the second church that I've served, the same thing. But people would just ended up saying, like, what's wrong with you, Pastor Sam? People want to just have fellowship. But I couldn't bear the whole thinking saying, I mean, it's very distracting. Once again, why can't you do that on Friday or Saturday? You are putting that and you are eclipsing our Sunday worship with the prospect of playing basketball. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody's, nobody wants to stay for the Sunday school. Everybody wants to go to gym on Sunday afternoon. So these are some of the examples that one you to think about. How when you separate fellowship from the gospel, it's not... It's not how it should be done. Now, let's think about theology part. That's the definition. Carnal people would always say, Sam, why are you so serious about that? You've got to relax. You've got you you to let people do what they want to do. Suddenly I become, or have become at the time, legalist. Suddenly I was the conservative one. And all I was trying to say was, Sunday, in a short period of time that we have, I will do my best to communicate the gospel. I understand, you could do that in the basketball and all of that, but it was always, to me, a distraction. So, it depends on, not on the pastor alone, but the entire church, wherever you are, whether you are in charge of coffee table today, where in charge of that part or that part, people have to be spiritual people whose focus is on the aim of God's glory. And carnal people will always resent at the fact that why are we always praying? Why are we always trying to do Jesus, Bible study, all of that? You see, it doesn't work like that. So have that in mind, and I'm just praying that all of us will be spiritual people. When we engage in any work, whatever that we do, we do it for the glory of God. So that, that shouldn't be a surprising part. It shouldn't be a, a surprise when, when we 
try to say that. So if you would go to verse 6, let me talk about a few theology part. For I am, is supplied by the translators, for I am confident of this very thing, what? That he who began a good work in you, in the Philippians, will perfect it or perform it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you know this verse, verse 6? He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a very famous verse. In what? In perseverance of the saints. In fact, our confession, chapter 17, Philippians 1, 6 is a proof text. So, verse 6, when we people think about verse 6... They think of it as this way. God began the good work of salvation in me. And he will complete that good work in me. So I am not going to fall away from my salvation. That's how people interpret verse 6. So question really is about what is this good work? When in verse 6, he who began a good work in you. But have you noticed in the beginning of verse 6, in the literal translation, verse 5 and verse 6, they are connected. You cannot separate verse 6 as if it is talking about perseverance of the saints. It, it does in a sense. But if you look at it carefully, you, get, you have to wonder what does that good work refer to? Is it salvation or is it something else? In verse 5, this good work, antecedent of this good work in verse 5 is that word fellowship in the gospel. That's the context. So the idea is that God's good work is the koinonia, their participation in the gospel from the first day until now, having been confident of this very thing, what? That God who began this, this fellowship, participation from you in the gospel, that he who did begin in your good work will perform it till a day of Jesus Christ. So, idea, verse 6, this confidence and this good work, really, they go back to God creating in the Philippians' heart, hearts for them to participate in the proclamation of the gospel and that we should take that into consideration. What does that mean? So good work here should be understood as three concentric circles. First, the, in the core, at the core is the gospel salvation. How can they participate in the gospel? If you're not born again, if you're not a Christian, this definition of fellowship as participation in the gospel will not make sense. I just want to play baseball. But when I say, well, no, it is about really church as redeemed, born again, people of God, it is it's a bit more than that. It is for the glory of God to promote this fellowship with other believers. So there has to be a new heart in you. 
So that's good work that God began, but it is not at the individual level only. It is the Philippian church. You, in you. Philippian church, this corporate body of Christ, they are participating in the ministry of Paul. Not few individuals, but as a church. Third, is their mutual participation in the gospel with Paul. So good work is not simply about my salvation, and I'm not going to lose my salvation, but in connection to verse 5, he's giving thanks about their faithful participation in the gospel. And he's confident that God who began in you that good work, yes, salvation, but it's not merely salvation but church participating in the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So I am confident that God who began that good work in you will perfect it until the last day is the idea. So why is this important? At this time, when Paul was writing this, where is he? He's in prison. So this good work that refers back to fellowship, their fellowship in the gospel, their participation in the gospel, this good work is in danger because they are physically separated. Paul is in prison, Philippian churches in Philippi. How can they have mutual participation or fellowship with one another in the gospel? Forget the fellowship. He's in prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to get out or he's going to get, receive death sentence. He's away. He's locked up in the prison. And the church really is being torn apart by two prominent ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. That's why I told you he is humbling himself from the beginning, calling himself a slave of Christ. Not good. Now, with that, If fellowship, this participation, is how we look at the church, life of church together, we could apply this to our church as well, RPC. I think our situation is somewhat like Paul's situation. Paul was not free to move around. Paul was not free to go to different cities. He's locked up in the prison. And for us as a church, past three years and even counting this year, we are in some sense in a prison. We cannot, we cannot, we we don't own a building, which makes everything so much harder than other churches. So how can we, I mean, how can we talk about fellowship? So, when time comes when we have time and a place to do fellowship, official kind of fellowship, I mean, we are going to do it. It's not really a problem. We could just do it. But I believe the more fundamental question for us is, how can this fellowship of our church survive? I think that's the more fundamental question. Paul was not God, obviously. Paul does not know the future infallibly. 
Certain times God will communicate certain things to him. We see in the book of Acts. But he cannot tell whether that fellowship that he has at this point could survive his prison time or not. What about us? Right, it is at this point. We look at verse 6 again. And we zero in on our word. That is, he who began a good work in you. Who began this good work? Their fellowship in the gospel, the Philippian church and Paul. Who began? Was it Paul? Was it human institution, agency? Don't we know it is from God that the relationship began? Remember in book of Acts chapter 16, it tells us how this church began. We talked about this and you know this. Paul wanted to stay in Turkey, modern day Turkey. He wanted to go upward, north, east. But what does the Bible say? The spirit of Christ prevented Paul from doing that. Some of you, we all had our own plans. But some of our plans were frustrated. And some of us were feeling hurt because some things didn't work out. Paul wanted to go, but when the Spirit of Christ prevented him from going north, he does not tell us what that looked like. But this Philippian church was born because God prevented Paul from going north. That's oftentimes how God works. It is not always through victories and good things how God builds up the church. Like cave of Adullam, people may gather because their own plans were frustrated by whatever. But in God's providence, they gathered together to a cave where David was a fugitive from King Saul. And all of those people would become the founding fathers of that next generation nation for King David. Paul couldn't go up north and there was a vision at night and he dreamt a dream and in a dream a Macedonian man said, come over to Macedonia and help us. So he decided that God called them to Macedonia and they go. But Macedonia where? God didn't tell. God didn't say. That man in a dream, he didn't say. It's like, come to New York State and help. Where? Queens, Long Island, upstate. I don't know. Macedonia is a huge chunk of land. So they just went to the biggest city, Philippi. And they just so went to the place of prayer. That's where they met Lydia. Paul speaks about the gospel. There's a conversion. And their church. And all of that. That's how this Philippian church began. And what Paul is saying is, it is God who brought us together. It is God who began this good work between you and me. This is a partnership. This is fellowship in the gospel. And it is God who is maintaining this, sustaining this, and 
question really for all of us. Is God only knows. But God's hand was upon building this church. Then you and I, we need to be faithful. That's the, that's the issue. You and I, we will have to remain faithful. What, what is going to happen, we don't know. Paul couldn't tell. He's not prophesying. He's not prophesying, your life is going to get better. Or my life is going to get better. I'm just going to get out of the you know, prison in two years. I see the vision. He doesn't talk about this. But all he's saying is that he who began a good work in the past sense, would perfect it. That's what he's saying. I look unto God in this prison. I'm stuck in prison. I cannot do much in prison, but I am thankful for that, that how God began this fellowship between you and me would perfect it. My hope lies in God. So I say this to you. Every day, small church has to fight against this discouragement. And if you and I confess that we believe in the same God who began a good work in this church past 12, 13 years, then we need to believe it. We need to act like that. We need to stand firm. We need to just keep walking. That's, that's the news. That's good news. With that, by fixing his eyes on he who began a good work in you, he has two dominant feelings. Verse 3, I thank my God. So he's thankful. In verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, you see. What are you feeling today? Truthfully, today, by 3.30 p.m., nobody was here except one lady. So I thought, nobody's going to show <laughs> Nobody's going to show up. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm ready to talk about fellowship, but nobody's, <laughs> nobody's here then. How can I talk about fellowship? What do you feel when you think about our church? Many things, probably. But what I am saying is, you and I have the same word of God. And may God give you two dominant feelings. Feeling is very important. If you're feeling depressed, if you feel discouraged then really you, you, you cannot live your life for Christ. Remember a long time ago when I wanted to preach from Philippians, my question was what? How did he survive? Knowing Paul, how did he survive this imprisonment without any future prospect of being released from the prison? How can he, being stuck in a prison cell, how can he not lose his mind? How can he not be discouraged? Here is the answer. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. So, what does he say? He does not beg people. You see, I'm in a bad situation. Help me. Send me help. No, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you says, I am confident of this very thing. And I pray that's how you would feel today. By faith. 
I'll say one more thing. That he who began a good work is past tense. He's not seeing some special manifestation of the Holy Spirit. He's simply saying, the way we came together as a church, Philippians and you and me, by looking at that, I'm pretty thankful and confident. So we as a church, we look back at our past history of this church. And it is not simply from the Bible that you should draw some theology and be confident. You look back at our lives and look at all that God has done. And I don't think it's sinful for us to put some confidence in the, in the past providence of God. Mercy shown in this church. Look at the past. But he's also looking at the future. And the future is spoken in these term, terms. It until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in the past will perfect it till when? Till the day of Christ Jesus. There are two days that we talk about in theology. Day of the Lord. Hayom Yahweh. Day of Yahweh is the day of judgment. Primarily in the Old Testament. Day of the Lord is a bad day. But when you examine this day of Christ Jesus, the usage in the New Testament, it always has one thing in mind, that is the perfection. So he's looking back at the inception of the church, how all of the history, God in his providence, God uphold, dispose, and direct every single action and thoughts, and God brought these people together. By God's grace, that fellowship is being maintained by God's grace. But his confidence is also by looking at the future. Till the day of Christ Jesus. And I told you, that day is the day of perfection. It is the day of glorification. And this week, that was my biggest encouragement. How can a, our church survive? It is not by putting trust in God. For example, like this, at this point, I talked about how we should go back to our church place, school. If that's my hope, nearsighted hope, when that happens, probably everything will be okay. Next phase, maybe... Pray to God that God will give us an independent building. Maybe then our church will grow and everything will be okay. You see, the fallacy of that is so nearsighted. It is our church need-driven. It's not a bad thing. But if my hope is in those segments, A, B, C, D, and F, it will never end. We often talk about put your faith in God, put your faith and hope in God. But what Paul is saying is, I'm in prison, dark prison, but I am looking at the day of Christ Jesus. And I thought this week, that's where my eyes should be fixed upon. Not the next phase of this church. Plenty of people will come and go. But if God has called us together in His providence, and if you believe that, you should be thankful and you should be confident. 
And my eyes will not be fixed upon next phase of the church. Stage A, stage B, stage C. Plenty of things could go wrong. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let none of those who wait for you be ashamed. So all the day I wait upon you. See, I think that's the most fundamental attitude that we should have. Cause of our fellowship was our justification. The purpose of our fellowship is our sanctification. And the goal of our fellowship is the day of Christ Jesus or day of glorification. So let all that we do, let us do it in participation of the gospel for his glory. And if our goal is not simply to build and survive this time and the church, but if it is really a sanctification, and if it is really the glorification, then we should do all things, especially the fellowship with left, no man left behind mental, men, mentality. I am dragging my fellow brother and sister to the finishing line, the goal line of glorification. I may have a barbecue with one another, but that is part of sanctification. I want to be a blessing unto that person or that person. I may play baseball, yes, but it is really to build each person up in the name of Christ for the discipleship. So everything that we should we do should include everyone in the church in mind. So let God bless his church. And may God, who began this good work of this fellowship of RPC, let him perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And may God give you thanksgiving and confidence in him alone. And may you walk this walk of faith Till the end is my prayer for you all. Let us pray.